our first Sunday together in 2024, and we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday, talking more about the spiritual disciplines that we ought to be engaged in in the new year. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're looking for verse 24. Just a little bit of context before we just dive in. Leading up to this verse, Paul has been talking about Christian liberty. And he has talked about how he has died to his own rights so that he can become a servant to all men in order to win some to the gospel. And then in the verse right before we're going to start, in verse 23, he makes this important statement. He says, I do some things, no, all things for the sake of the gospel. All things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Let the weight of that statement sink in. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, beginning in verse 24, Paul begins with a phrase he's quite famous for. He says, do you not know? There's a whole string of do you not know statements uh, in 1 Corinthians. I believe this is the 10th in this particular letter. Now, some of the Corinthians were probably new believers and they really didn't know the things that Paul's been talking about. But for the most part, they did know, but they had functionally forgotten, meaning they knew what was true. They just chose not to do it, chose not to obey. They were doing what so many American Christians do today. Instead of laboring and striving for spiritual growth, they are just coasting in their newfound faith. I'm saved, so that's the end of it, right? They weren't taking sin seriously. They were acting like holiness was optional. They were presuming upon the grace of the Lord. And so Paul begins in verse 24. This is a rebuke. He says, do you not know? Haven't you heard? Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's not trying to turn Christianity into a competition where we match up our works and say, oh, look, I win and you lose, or vice versa. You know, I'm doing more than you're doing. That's not the point. He's simply exhorting every true believer to run the course of the Christian life with the mindset of a champion. Run with the mindset of a champion who's passionate about winning. That's to mark our Christian lives. And sporting events were huge in Greece in Paul's day. And that's why he often uses athletic metaphors. Corinth was the site of many Olympic-style games, and so Paul says, look, you know, you Corinthians know how hard these men train to compete in those games. They do it with a singular focus in mind to win their event. And that's the same mentality you should bring to this thing we call the Christian life in the way we run it. Now, just to be clear so that we're not misunderstood, Paul's not talking about salvation here. He's not talking to unsaved people and saying, hey, work really hard so that you can earn your way into the kingdom. No, he's challenging the believers in Corinth to labor and to strive to fulfill their calling as saints and as children of God. That's the point here. Now, in verse 25, we come to the primary character trait that Paul has in mind as he writes. He says, everyone who competes in those games exercises what? Self-control in all things. The fact is, guys, races are not won automatically, are they? We know this. We, we watch the Olympics every four years, right? We, we see things in between those, those games. Races aren't won automatically. People who don't train, people who don't have a passion for their event, people who don't put in the hard work, they don't win. 
They don't. The athlete who does win is always gonna be the one who wants it the most, who puts in the hard work, does whatever it takes to be the best, and the one who is willing to pay that price in order to claim that victory. And the key component to that mindset is, oh, you already, you already got it. How did you do that? Self-control. <laughs> Self-control is the key component. See, for the athlete, and you know this, if you've been in sports, you know this, winning the race actually doesn't just happen on the day of the race, does it? Winning happens in all the little moments leading up to the day of the race. All of the discipline and self-control that goes into training for that race. I mean self-control in your training regimen, in your diet, in your sleep patterns, in your mental outlook, in the way that you spend any free time that you have. The one who sets his eye on the prize and ultimately wins the race will be the person who doesn't function like everybody else. The one who shows exemplary discipline and self-control. That's the one who's gonna win. That's Paul's point here. And again, he's talking about the Christian life. Now, in the next phrase, he overtly turns the metaphor from athletics to the Christian life. He says, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So this is what we call in logic and debate an a fortiori argument, or in English, a how much more argument. If an athlete will train that hard with strict discipline and self-control just to win a single race and to get the applause of a crowd and to put a wreath on his head that's going to wither and die the next day, how much more should we as Christians be willing to restructure our priorities and exercise strict self-control in, in order to win the spiritual race that's been set before us? A victory that has eternal consequences, that comes with a crown that, that doesn't wither, doesn't fade, but it's eternal in nature. How much more effort and sacrifice should you and I be willing to make in order to win so great a crown? That's what he's trying to get across to the Corinthian church. Man, if Paul were here in America, I think he'd say the same thing. How much more? And so based on the clarity and truth of that comparison, here's his conclusion in verse 26. Therefore... Because of that truth, he says, I run in such a way. So notice that he takes his logic and he now applies it to his own life. He says, this is how I run, as an example to you Corinthians. This is how I do it. But interestingly, in this part of the argument, he uses a negative. He says, this is what I don't do, right? I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. So this is kind of laughable. Again, if you're a runner, you know this. I don't just run anywhere. That would be really stupid. I don't just run in circles. I run with a goal in mind. I know where the finish line is. I fix my eyes on that, and I run the course. Imagine a marathon runner. You know, sometimes the marathon uh, in the Olympics, the course is like all over the place, right? It's sometimes on, on, in cities, sometimes in the country, and you gotta make the right turns. Imagine a marathon runner who doesn't study the course before he runs, and he gets lost because he doesn't know where the finish line is. Or imagine a boxer who climbs in the ring and the bell sounds, and he just starts swinging wildly, not even aiming at his opponent's face, not landing a single punch, but just swinging at the air. It's absurd, and that's the point of the argument here. It's absurd. But by stating it negatively, Paul is essentially accusing the Corinthians of treating their spiritual walk in that absurd way. 
You're not running, guys, with a passion to win the race. Your training is inconsistent. Your self-control is lacking. You haven't considered the enormity of what's at stake in this race that you're running. You're acting like a runner who doesn't even know the course, doesn't know where the finish line is. You're like the boxer. He can't even find his opponent in the ring. Your walk with Jesus reflects a lack of purpose, lack of goals, lack of vision, and lack of discipline. This is a rebuke to the Corinthian believers. So here's what Paul says he does, and this is the example that he sets before them. He says, but I discipline my body, verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul's saying, look, I bring my body under control. And by doing so, that gives me the ability to run with clarity of vision. He knows where the opponent is. He knows where the finish line is. And so therefore, every choice, every decision he makes in his training regimen has that eternal purpose in mind. That's the point of his argument. And what a great example for us. What a challenge for us, right? As we coast through life with so many good things that we have, that we're, are we thinking about that training regimen? Do we have clear vision? Now, just as a caution, when he says, I discipline my body, don't think medieval Roman Catholic monk, you know, beating his body with a, with a whip, right? He's talking about something very important, making sure that his outer man his body is in subjection to his inner man, is a servant to his inner man. That's really, really important. Oh, Josiah, you are, man, he is just tracking with me. Right? He's making, get that, his body, his outer man, a servant to his inner man. So if his desires and affections in the heart are aligned with God's word, then with the power of the Holy Spirit guiding him, he's able to bring his physical body under control and run that race and run it to win. And this is the calling for every one of us to grow in this as believers, right? It's a lifelong process of sanctifying the inner man so that more and more over time progressively we're becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. And as I talked about last Sunday, that is ultimately a work that God has promised to do, but we have a responsibility to cooperate in that work, to cooperate with the work that the Spirit wants to do. We have to run and we have to box with our focus on the prize. That's what the passage is telling us. So where are we headed with this? Okay, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that we started talking about these, these things that are on our lips every single year we turn from December 31st to January 1st, and we start thinking about reflecting. We start talking about resolutions and recommitments, whatever you wanna call it. And so we started the process of talking about spiritual disciplines. And we looked at a passage from 1 Timothy 4, which included these commands. I'll just briefly talk about them. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Why? Because godliness is profitable both for this present life. It's better to be godly on this earth than to be ungodly. If you don't believe that, we should talk later. He says it's profitable for this era, but also for all eternity. And because our hope is fixed on the living God, Paul says, we labor and we strive towards that goal to achieve godliness or godlikeness. That's the process we're all in. So some of the same themes last Sunday as we see here in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, last Sunday, we talked about a couple of important things. First of all, we talked about the value of doing a spiritual inventory at the beginning of a year. And again, made an athletic comparison. 
Guys who want to, at the end of a season, analyze their game. They say, well, where's, where are the weaknesses in my game? Where do I need to improve so that next season I do better? And we can do that spiritually. We can sit down, spend some time, set aside time with the Lord, and begin to write down, here are all the places I need to shore up in my race that I'm running, in my walk with Christ. Very valuable tool. If you don't put it down on paper, if you don't think about it, again, you're going to coast in your spiritual life. And I know it's hard to do that sometimes, right? Nobody likes to sit down and go, man, this is really this is where I'm really weak. But it's a necessary thing. Because if we don't put it down, if we don't bring it before the Lord, like Hezekiah bringing, bringing it before the altar and saying, Lord, here are my concerns, right? That's what we need to do. These are our weaknesses. So that's one. Then we talked about four personal spiritual disciplines that are essential in working towards godliness. There they are. Right? Those are the four things we talked about. The foundation being studying God's word because the other things flow out of that, right? Prayer often flows out of our study of the word because we see the truth and we go, ooh, I need to pray about that. Right? And the meditation, we're marinating on the truths that we're reading in scripture all day long, every day. We're, mar- it's, we're meditating on those things. And then fasting is sort of that thing that we, that we do that it doesn't have to be food. It can be all kinds of things where we say, you know what, this has become a distraction in my life. It's taken me off course, so for a while, at least for a while, until I grow and mature through this struggle, I'm going to lay that aside, because that's the best thing for the race that I need to run. So those are four things. Now, those are all personal disciplines. Today, I want to add a fifth discipline for 2024, and this one is not personal. It's lived out with others. It's called the discipline of fellowship. Boom. Look at you, Josiah. So good the discipline of fellowship. And maybe you're like, I didn't know that was a discipline. Uh, We're going to talk about it. Now, if you've studied the early church at all, and by early, I mean the first few weeks and months of the early church, you know, according to Acts chapter two, that Luke describes that there were four things that right out of the gate with the birth of the church, four things that they really concentrated on, right? One was teaching, one was prayer. One was sharing common meals, and that, that probably included the Lord's table, communion, right? But it's that fourth one that jumps off the page. Wow, they were commit, devoted to, to fellowship. And that's what it says. It says they were devoted to this. That's a powerful word. They didn't just have fellowship. We do this in the church. We go, oh, we have fellowship. Let's go have fellowship. And that's good, but the picture's broader than that. They were devoting themselves to this as a discipline in the life of the church. They viewed fellowship as a highly important part of their lives together. It wasn't a side issue. It wasn't a secondary issue. It wasn't optional like, hey, if this fits into my calendar or if it's convenient for me, well, then I'll go and I guess I'll try to have a conversation with somebody. It was a primary objective for their spiritual lives. And the results of that devotion to those four things, we read this in our call to worship earlier, are nothing short of supernatural, right? Let me, let's put that, that verse up on the screen again. L- listen to the, the spiritual environment that the early church fostered by being devoted to those things. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Have you ever, have you ever been in a season of your, your walk with the Lord where you're just every day you're like, I'm in a sense of awe. Everybody was feeling that because they knew God was at work. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed, they were together. They loved to be together. And they had all things in common. 
They're sharing, right? They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. Like, I have a little more. You have a need. I'm on it. That's just the way they thought, the way they acted. Day by day, continuing with one mind. So they weren't like, hey, we should do this. No, I want to do this. No, you're wrong. No, I'm right. Let's go over here. They're like, with one mind, they were going to the temple, right? And they were breaking bread from house to house. They were visiting each other, hospitality. They were, they, were, they were excited to be with others, not isolated, but wanting to be with others, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Those are unbelievers. Unbelievers are looking at them and going, wow, there's something happening there. That's what the church should be. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord is the one who adds, right? Adds to the body of Christ. So what a vibrant atmosphere. We read that today and we think, man, I don't know how many times I've read that. If I could have just had a firsthand view and experience of that type of power. But you know what? That's actually possible for the church today. That's actually possible for the church today. If every part of the body is truly devoted to pursuing godliness and biblical fellowship. It's possible. If we're truly running the race as one body, with our eyes on the prize, each of us us exercising self-control in all things, we can't recreate the temple, right? We can't go to Jerusalem and do it, but it can be done right here in Santa Clarita. That type of power can be found if we're committed, every single one of us. Not just a few, not just the 20%, but every single one of us. Every one of us. But as fallen beings, there's all kinds of things that get in the way. Can we just be honest now? Like, we want that. Everybody, I'm sure, looks at we want that. But what are the obstacles that get in the way? Well, first, the modern concept of fellowship that we as evangelicals have created over the last 50 years has become so weak and so squishy that most people who go to church today have no clue what fellowship biblically actually means. They they don't get it, and they haven't been taught it. And that's part of why I was excited about this message, because they haven't been taught. My guess is if the apostles were able to come back to life and they walked into a typical typical American megachurch and people said, oh, this is fellowship, they'd go, excuse me? Where? They wouldn't even recognize what we're doing today. I remember when I was growing up, grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and uh, my family would occasionally visit Canoga Park Presbyterian Church. And as a kid, you know, you have those flash moments where you remember some things. And I remember vividly, every time we went, there was always that person at the end of the service who said, make sure you join us later for fellowship in the fellowship hall. Right? Did anybody else grow up in a church like that, a little Baptist church or something? In the fellowship hall. So I learned early on that what fellowship was, was you go to a particular building, a place, and you have these really surfacey conversations over coffee and donuts, and then you say goodbye. And I said, fellowship's really boring. Because you're a kid, you're running around going, when can we go home? Fellowship seemed to me to be really boring and really stale. Looking back, it's not that that fellowship hall was a bad thing, but it seemed to that church was defining fellowship in this very limited and stunted way. 
And people just accepted that, that that was, I've done my fellowship thing. Not only have we watered down and thus misunderstood what fellowship is, we're also prone by nature and culture to resist it. By nature, we are all prone to be so caught up in our own individual lives, our own wants and desires and pursuits that we're not able to find enough time in our schedules for other people or not enough concern in our hearts to really care for other people. It's part of our nature, right? And, and we, we've seemed to, in this, and, and look, I'm as guilty as anybody, in this culture to accepted that. We just live in a complicated world is our, is our excuse. We're just really busy. Too busy to live out what is clearly commanded in the Bible. So that's the nature problem. We're all self-centered creatures. We're most concerned with our own lives, what we want. And, and so therefore, we have very little margin left over for other people. Very little margin for concern about what other folks are going through. On the culture side, though we're supposed to be a people who renew our minds so that we're not conformed to the, to the culture, we are, all, we are prone to adapt the views of the culture in terms of fellowship. Here's an example. Relativism works against biblical fellowship. The idea that truth is relative to my situation. I mean, I might see something in the Bible, but that's not my situation, we say. And therefore, I organize my beliefs, I organize my life choices and my decisions based on my truth and what's going on in my life. So what guides me then? Is it scripture? No, it's more about my personal wants, my personal traditions, my personal preferences. Those are the things that are gonna really guide me in terms of the choices I make in the body of Christ, not the commands of God. If I see a command I don't like, I simply wave that away because it doesn't fit my life. That's relativistic Christianity. And then there's the concept of individualism, which is huge in the church today, which works against biblical fellowship. What I believe and do is my private business. It's between me and God. I'm in a silo. I mean, I know I go to a building on Sundays occasionally. I know I do, but I'm in a silo and Look, it's about me and God. That's it. Individualism. So many churchgoers don't want to be involved in the lives of others. They're like, look, here's what I want to do. I want to come to that beautiful building on a Sunday. I want to get a good cup of coffee, slide in, you know, second to last row, get a good teaching, zip out as the music starts on the backside, got my teaching, I'm good to go. Because it's between me and God. And these other people, I hope they're doing good but it's not my concern. Individualism. They just want to be left alone to worship as they please. And for their benefit, they're consumers, not participants. And you'll see them on occasion sliding in and out of a church service, but really not engaging on any significant level. Have you ever wondered why so many churches are marked by disunity today and why so many of them implode or split? It's because we're continuing to fail in this area of biblical fellowship. We're failing in this area. We're, churches are filled with too many congregants who are fleshly, who are self-centered, who are individualistic, and that always breeds division. So these are problems for every church. And it's good for us as believers to analyze our own lives and say, what are the patterns that I'm exhibiting in the way that I approach fellowship? Do I fall into any of these categories, even partially, even a little bit? I say, ah, you know what? I'm not that bad, Jeff, but I do have a, you know, a tendency to be sort of like that. Am I ruled by self-centeredness? 
only giving my time or concern to others when it's convenient for me or, whether, or when it's desirable for me? Am I a relativist at heart, functioning as my own authority, customizing my life in the body in a way that accords it with the way I want it to be, not what God says? Or am I acting primarily as an individual and not really part of the community, keeping people at arm's length, looking to privately consume rather than give of myself? Those are good questions to ask. Again, as we go into the new year, do a spiritual inventory. Did any of those things bring up something in your heart where you're like, okay, it's okay to be honest about that before the Lord and say, I need to work on this. It's good. So what does it mean then for us to make fellowship a spiritual discipline? This is the key question. Not having fellowship, but making it a spiritual discipline so that it becomes a core part of our lives. Were there two primary Greek words in the New Testament that speak of fellowship? One I'm sure you've heard of many times, koinonia. Metakos is the other. And together, when you put them together, those two Greek words sort of share those concepts that you see on the screen. They talk about sharing, partaking, participating, partnering, and communing. Notice all of those words require engagement with other people. <laughs> oh, no. Right? Fellow introverts. Oh, no. I mean, I can sense the anxiety in your hearts. I get it. I've been there. But they require engaging with other. And listen, this is by design. This is the way God has designed us. Man, this is hard, right? He created us to be dependent people. First of all, dependent on him, but secondly, dependent on one another. Remember he said in the very beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, I know that means primarily marriage, but it, it applies to all parts of life. It's not good for us to be isolated. It's not good for us to be alone. We're designed by God to be members of a functioning body where every part needs every other part. Right? And where each part actually has a responsibility to function for the benefit of all the other parts. And I know this is hard. We're like, you're like, but I don't know what my part is, or, or do I really, do, am I really needed? Yes. Yes, you are. Each of us has to fulfill our unique role. Otherwise, the body is not as healthy as it should be because it's not as healthy as God wants it to be or designed it to be. It's our job to fulfill our role for the glory of God, for the building of his kingdom, and for the blessing and encouragement and edification of everybody else who calls themselves a part of Oak Hill. All of us. And when we fail at this, when we fail at this or worse, refuse to be involved with it, then the local church suffers in its effectiveness. And so I, I believe this is a big part of why the American church is not as effective as it could be these days. Because the body's not functioning the way Christ designed it to be. So do me a favor this week. Read through 1 Corinthians 12. It will tell you so much about what it means to be a part of a body. In fact, 12 times in 15 verses, you will hear Paul use the word member. A member of a body. And what, what's called for in terms of being a member of the body. And listen, I could, we could spend, if we had the time, we'd go like two hours just flipping from passage to passage, talking about this concept of the body and fellowship. It's, it's literally all over, the Bible, all over the Bible. And yet so many times we just want to look away, say, well, I don't, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if it fits my life. I don't know if it's the way I want to worship. 
but it's everywhere. It's literally everywhere. So let me flesh out a few more principles, and then we're going to get really practical on what I think this discipline of fellowship looks like at Oak Hill. A couple more important things. It's important to know that the biblical, the biblical fellowship is first and foremost a relationship, not an activity. The, those of us who are introverts, we, we're like, hey, put me on something, I'll, I'll do, that's fine, I'll do it. But I wanna say that, yes, the relationship always produces active, shared activity, but that's a natural outflow of the relationship. So our goal is to, is to actually build relationships in the body, and therefore that produces activity that we call fellowship. Does that make sense? It all stems from the common relationship that we share, that we're all found in Christ. That, that's, that's the fountain of it all. We're all found in him. We share his life and his light, and that makes us one body because we're found in him. Whether that's something you want or not is irrelevant. It's just an ontological fact that if you're found in him, you're part of the body. According to Romans 12, 5, we are members of one another. We're members of one another. We often say we belong to each other. That's true. It's actually deeper than that. We're members of each other. We're one. That's literally what the passage says in Corinthians and Romans. We're one. Are we functioning that way? What we need to do is move from that ontological truth that we are one into practical function in that way so that we begin to live out what God says is actually true of us. And that's so much of the Christian life. God says, here's what you are, and we go, I don't know about that. No, here's what you are. Really? Are you sure? Here's what you are. Start becoming that, and I will give you my spirit to help you in that process. But you got to acknowledge that that's true, first of all, and then by the power of the spirit, present that to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I get it. This is what I am. Help me become it. So it's ontologically true that we are one body. Now let's start functioning that way. So it starts with the relationship, but then we have the issue of partnership. And this is so important. As partakers of the person and life of Christ, we are automatically brought into a, we are co-partners in the mission of Christ on the earth. Again, whether you want to be a part of that or not, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. You are a co-partner in the mission of Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. You're either a good ambassador or a not-so-good ambassador, but you're a co-partner in the mission. So relationship and partnership. And then we come to the necessity of communing with each other. As members of one another, we share life together. And again, for introverts, I know that is scary. We share our lives together. It's a non-negotiable. If we want to be a biblical New Testament church, it's non-negotiable. So again, first of all, it's something we have to acknowledge that's true, and then over time grow and mature in that truth and become what God says we are. Listen, this is my testimony. When I was a younger believer, I didn't want any part of this. I, I was an introvert. I was, I was like, leave me alone. I'm doing my thing. I, God can do miracles in people. <laughs> my wife said, amen. Uh, and it's, and listen, if, if you have a personality bent away from this, it's, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's non-negotiable if you want to live a New Testament life. And so acknowledge that it's true. Ask for help. Go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I know this is what you say I am. Help me become it. 
Help me to grow and mature in this area. One last thing that's important is stewardship. Remember what a steward is. A steward is not the owner of things, right? A steward is the manager of the things that are given to him by another. And so we acknowledge that everything that we have belongs to God, but so many things have been given to us to manage well, to invest well. So whatever things we have, our gifts, our skills, our advantages, our finances, all of it has come from his hand. And now he says, go out and manage these things well. Invest well, not for your benefit, for for others. Right? So how can we not share what we've been given? If it's not ours, how can we not share with our brothers and sisters? How dare we receive so much from God by his grace and then withhold from the body things that we didn't earn in the first place? So we share our resources. We share our lives because they all come from the Lord. That's the mindset we have to have. Look, we've lost this in the American church in the last 50 years. We really have. It's all about you know, individualism now. But that's not the way the church was designed. And so biblical fellowship rules out self-centeredness. It denies individualism and it rejects consumerism. It is not just saying good morning on a Sunday. It is not just going to a fellowship hall and having coffee and donuts. It's relationship, it's partnership, it's community, and it's good stewardship. Amen? So let's get practical then. How do we go about implementing the discipline of fellowship at Oak Hill? Remember now, what did our text say about this? What was the command? In all of these things, run in such a way as to win the race. Don't coast on this, run. Exercise self-control. Put your eyes on that finish line, focus on it. Discipline your body to do these things. Exercise that control. All these character traits are gonna have to be developed in you and I if we wanna engage in biblical fellowship. It's gonna require to some extent, ready? Dying to ourselves. To engage in biblical fellowship to some extent is gonna mean dying more to yourself and laying aside whatever obstacle is in the way of you becoming what God says you actually are. What are those things? I don't know. That, that is, I cannot tell you what is in the way of any of you guys engaging in biblical fellowship. You have to figure that out. And my guess is you actually know what it is. Whether you want to admit it out loud, that's a whole other issue. Whether you want to take it to the Lord in prayer, that's between you and him. But you know what's in the way of engaging in true biblical fellowship. We just need to be honest with ourselves and with the Lord. And then, and then once we're honest and say, okay, you're right. These are the things I need to grow in. Okay, good. Then let's get to it. Let's run the race. Not perfectly, not always straight up, sometimes up and down, and we're gonna have those moments, but we acknowledge the principle and we head to the finish line, correct? Good. It's way too quiet in here. So here's some practical things that you should consider. First of all, let me, let me just start with what I think is the foundational principle of all of it, and that's committing to church membership. Putting a ring on it as the kids say, right? Making a commitment. Membership in a local church, not just attending, not just being a perpetual visitor. At some point, and listen, I'm all in favor, we say it a lot, our elder team, take your time to look carefully at a church because it's a big commitment. 
Make sure that the teaching is solid. Make sure the doctrine is sound. Make sure the leadership is trustworthy. Take that time. But at some point, you have to take that step in committing to a local body of believers. Not in theory, not on paper, but actual real people. (laughs) Uh, As imperfect as they're definitely going to be. Because I'm imperfect. So we say, okay, look, I mean... Am I going to find a better group of believers somewhere else in town? No, just different. So we say, all right, forget the theory, forget the paper, I'm here. And if not, it'll kill somewhere. I'm not saying we're the perfect church for everybody, but somewhere. An actual local church where with people you can share, partake, participate, partner, and commune. And if you've been hesitant to make that commitment, then here's the thing. Discipline yourself to make that commitment. Start running the race alongside real people who want to know that you're all in with them. That's number one. Here's the follow-up to membership. A huge and important part of sharing and fellowship with the body is committing to and striving for unity. Always unity. As you go through the ups and downs of life, churches are imperfect. Life in the church has its ups and downs, it steps forward, it steps back. But the principle is that we always strive for that. We always strive for unity. We say this in our covenant, ready? Always practicing forgiveness, pursuing reconciliation, and rejecting harmful gossip. Committing to those things. If every member isn't exercising discipline and self-control in those three things, and if we're not committed to the principle of unity above our own personal interests, we'll end up in division and disunity. So unity is huge. Third one, fellowship also means walking through life together in brotherly love or sisterly love. Okay? As we say in our covenant, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another's lives. Man, this goes against the grain of everything that people want. Wait, you're going to get in my business? (laughs) But it's literally what the Bible says we need. Yeah. Exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another. Everybody, have you noticed this? Believers always talk about, I want accountability. Really? I mean, everybody says it, but you have to actually exercise it. You have to say, that's what I want in my life. I want to exercise care and watchfulness over you if you'll do that for me. That's good and healthy. And, and, and it, you know, it means that we have to open up our lives to each other. Again, a dangerous thing, right? It means maybe finding some people that you really connect with and you trust that you can share the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of your heart and say, I need prayer and I need help. Will you walk with me through this? This is what we all need. Every single one of us in this room needs it. And if rebuke or correction are necessary, out of love, we say, okay, well, I need to walk down that hard path too. Because it's not loving to watch a brother or sister sin and sin and sin and say, not my business. It's not loving. So we walk down the hard path, even in correction and rebuke. We all need it. We all need it. Walking together, that's what it means to walk together in brotherly or sisterly love. Biblical fellowship means not forsaking the gathering of the saints for frivolous reasons. Now, I know that there's always, there's always good reasons to miss a gathering of the saints. You're, you're on vacation, right? We love vacations. We're big fans, 
right? Somebody's sick, we get all that. But if you're, if you're blowing off the gathering of the saints for frivolous reasons, you're missing biblical fellowship. And this is whether it's Sunday mornings or in small group settings. And by the way, this is a command straight from the Bible, right? Hebrews 10 talks about, do not forsake the gathering of believers. And there's an obvious reason why God commanded this, because when we don't have constant togetherness, when we're not hearing the word, when we're not praying, when we're not singing together, when we're not sharpening iron, we get wobbly in our faith, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Didn't we already sing that this morning? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We need to be together. Do not blow off the gathering of the saints. We need to sit under the teaching of the word together and then sharpen iron with what we're learning. We need to be praying corporately. Already this morning, we prayed for some very specific needs in our body. We need to be singing praises side by side. You know, we've talked about this example before where here I am singing the praises of the Lord and I can look across the auditorium and see somebody that I know is going through a hard time, but they're singing their guts out because they love Jesus. We need that. So we don't miss the gathering of the saints unless it's a, a real reason. Fellowship means being present for those in our body who are struggling. Whew. Being present. Nobody who is a member at Oak Hill should ever feel like they're alone. Ever. So we, make, we let people know. Talk to us. What are you wrestling with? What are you going through? You're not alone. We love you. We will walk through this with you. Being present for each other. Sometimes it means discipling, sometimes counseling. Listen, if you have wisdom and experience to share, share it. If you need help or you have questions, ask. It's that vibrancy of the body where we're, we're interacting with each other in all these different ways that makes fellowship so sweet. Fellowship means hospitality in all of its forms. Sometimes that means opening up our homes. Sometimes it means just, hey, let's get together and go out because I can't fit people in my apartment. <laughs> I get it, right? Here's the thing with hospitality. It means taking initiative. I hear a lot of people say, well, nobody's calling me. You call. Taking the initiative, taking the risk of inviting somebody over or inviting somebody out to say, I want to build a relationship. And not always when it's just easy, like here's the three people I really like, so I'm going to keep calling them over and over and over again. No, outside the comfort zone to say, you know what? I see that couple, I see them serving. You know, I see them singing. I, I, I want to get to know them better. How can I reach out and do that? Hospitality, making other people the priority. Fellowship obviously requires serving one another, being intentional about serving, not expecting to be served when you gather. But listen, walking into every gathering here in a home, whatever, with your spiritual eyes on to see how can I serve other people? See, that's one of the big problems with the church today. Everybody walks in thinking, what am I gonna be able to consume today? How am I gonna be fed? They're not walking in to say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna get fed, that's a side benefit. But my first priority is, who do I need to see? Who do I need to serve? Who needs an encouraging word today? That's part of fellowship. Serving, what ministry team are you on right now? Are you an active member of that ministry team? Or are you like holding back on, ah, there's like 40 people on the team. Someone else will do it. Or are you serving? Are you saying, no, coach, pick me. Put me in. I want to love people. 
I want to love in a practical way. Only a couple more. Fellowship means sharing material and financial resources with others. It requires consistent and joyful giving. A portion of that to the local church, but also just having your ear to the ground, like who has a need? If you've been blessed, be a blessing. Like I have some extra, whatever it might be, and I hear about a need, I'm gonna jump on that. That's biblical fellowship. Fellowship can mean something as simple as waking up each day with your church family on your heart. Who needs prayer? Who do I know right now in the body is going through something? So I grab my phone and I send an encouraging text. Or I pick up the phone, even better. You can actually call people on those things. (laughs) And say, hey, I don't know why, but the Lord put you on my heart this morning. What's going on? Are you okay? How can I pray? So you wake up, again, not just thinking about yourself, but thinking about others. Think about new members. Like we all, we all vote in new members and it's so exciting, but these poor folks are coming into a body of, you know, a couple hundred people and how can we help to assimilate them? How can we reach out and say, hey, you're brand new at Oak Hill. Can we get coffee? Can you come over to the house? It's, again, it's, it's getting outside of yourself and thinking about other people. Listen, there's so many more things I could talk about this morning. But let me wrap up with this important reminder. It's not just an activity. Fellowship's not just an activity, it's a relationship. And that means, last one, Josiah, you're doing so good. That means you have to know people. And knowing people means you have to engage and spend time and be concerned for others. It means being known. So it's reciprocal. You're saying, not only do I want to know you, but let me share about me. And then we can do this mutual love for one another. Our love, our commitment, and what we do flows, first of all, remember this, out of the love that Christ has poured into us. But it doesn't stop there. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You've poured your life into me. End. No, it then flows out of us to one another. It shouldn't have to be forced. But at least at first, this might be a case where you Maybe for the first time this morning, you heard this command, you're not sure about it, you don't feel like doing it, but you're willing to take that first step of obedience anyway. And I mentioned it last week. When we talk about resolutions, even spiritual disciplines, it doesn't mean you have to do everything all at once and get overwhelmed and just give up because you couldn't do it all. It's maybe taking one small step, maybe one little thing I've mentioned today or last week and saying, you know what? I'm gonna do that one thing in obedience to Christ. And you know what? As the Spirit blesses that, then I'm going to build on that victory. And maybe next month I'm going to do one other thing. But we don't have to just you know, swallow the elephant and do everything right now. Take the step of faith and obedience. Because remember, I'm telling you, fellowship is a spiritual discipline. And you have to discipline your body to do it. You have to exercise self-control. It will take sacrifice. It will take obedience to commands. And we've read them. Discipline yourself. Train yourself for this purpose of godliness. Like we mentioned last week, like physical workouts, spiritual growth and maturity will not happen without strenuous effort. You won't won't make gains. You'll have to labor and strive 
to arrive at good, healthy, biblical fellowship. So look, it's going to require getting off the couch, getting out of your comfort zone, whatever it is to start running in such a way that you, you're aiming for the prize, but it's worth it. I want to say after, I don't know how many years, decades I've been a believer and looking back at where I was, it's worth it because it pleases the Lord and it builds his kingdom and it builds his church. And so it's a great, great, wonderful grace. So are you in for 2024? Yes. My wife is in. <laughs> you better be, hun. Right, let's do it together, amen? amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you for your word that sharpens us in so many ways, and sometimes it, it hurts just a little bit, but it's a good hurt. That conviction that we feel when we say, oh, man, yeah, I see it. I see it. Now what? And so I thank you, Lord, that you've encouraged us already this morning, challenged us, convicted us, encouraged us. And Lord, I pray that you would shower us with your grace because we are not going to do this perfectly and we are not going to be able to do it all at one time. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin a work in us to, to really see the truth about this, this concept. And God, that you would make Oak Hill all that you want it to be, a place of healthy biblical fellowship where we're living out these principles and Lord, that we're beginning to see more and more the power of that Acts 2 church because we're devoted to you and we're devoted to the right things and we're all a part of it. Lord, that's my prayer for Oak Hill this morning. May it be so according to your will, Lord. Thank you for this time this morning. Help us to sing well and to praise your name well right now. Amen.